Hi, and I want to welcome everyone to Faith, Hope, and Love in an, during an election. I think I've just said that wrong, but that's okay. You get the point. Um, I'm really excited today to be speaking with Dr. Robin Henderson-Espinoza, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves in, in a minute, but I'm personally very excited about this because I heard Dr. Robin several years ago at a conference, and uh, we never met, but I was just sort of a fangirl in the back listening to all these ideas and convictions and recommendations that um, were really wonderful for me. It was the Mystic Soul Conference, and it was the inaugural conference that was in Chicago um, in January, right? It was a January blustery day, <laughs> or a couple of days. Yeah, and something that was kind of funny and embarrassing for me was that um, our car was in the shop, and the car dealership gave me a loaner for the few days. It happened to overlap just when I was going in to that conference. And they gave me a brand new, enormous black luxury SUV, <laughs> like a BMW or a Mercedes SUV. Wow. I'm going to this conference, which is all people like me who are looking for social justice and talking about equity and talking about a lot of important issues. And I each day had to pull up in this gigantic gas guzzling. I mean, I think it was, I think I looked it up and it, the car was like $90,000 or $110,000, something that I felt really embarrassed to drive. But there I was and I'd get out and go to this conference with all these people who were just so sincere and, and you know, really world changing people. And I felt a little embarrassed to say the least. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Dr. Robin, tell us about yourself. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's great to um, talk about things that matter. Um, I love, I love thinking about faith, hope, and love during an election cycle. Mm -hmm. um, what are the virtues we want to embody to midwife the kind of world we want to have? So thank you so much for mm -hmm. the invitation, and I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so, you know, I am a myriad of things and also a paradox of things. I'm trained as an academic theologian. I'm on faculty at Duke Divinity School, but I also um, left my faculty post in Berkeley after the 2016 election to move home to the South to recover my roots, mm -hmm. to um, nurture myself, to steward my work from the American South. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I launched a collaborative project based on mm -hmm. my scholarship and activism uh, called the Activist Theology Project. And that project I am deeply invested in, which is an intersection of um, public theology, social healing, storytelling, and imagination. And so thinking about how do we create conditions for social healing from the place of the stories that shape us um, paired with our imagination for a better world. So I spent a lot of my time doing that. Of course, we're living in COVID land, COVID times. And, you know, before March, I was traveling the country speaking and um, getting to be on various campuses, getting to be with people. And one of the favorite things that I love is conversation because, you know, I, can't, I think that we actually don't know how to be in conversation with one another. We're, we're so divided. We um, 
are split against these um, ideological terrains called red and blue. Um, and and those, um, those ideologies impact our ability to be in conversation. And, and so, um, you know, I, I run my classes at Duke as a conversation. And so I'm deeply invested in the practice and art of conversation. And um, yeah, I mean, spent my time traveling, being in a conversation with people. And then now in, in COVID times, I'm quarantined with my partner and, you know, I'm just like having online conversations with people and trying to contribute to the discourse in meaningful ways um, without perpetuating harm. And mm-hmm. um, so that's a little bit about me and a I little bit about I, yeah, I did. Yeah. I did write a book called Activist Theology, and um, that that book has gone well, and people seem to be receiving it well. And a lot of people have been in contact during this time that um, the book has meaning for them in this moment, um, which is great to hear. And and I'm, I started on my second book around um, bodies and, and becoming and sort of my journey to becoming embodied um, after spending a lifetime in academia. Uh, so, yeah, that's a little bit about me and um, feel curious about where we'll go next. Yeah, I think that's interesting when you say um, becoming embodied after a lifetime in academia because it's true, like, so much, um, you know, we're just encouraged to think everything through and be, you know, in your head that I'm sure that's a really uh, – fascinating thing for you to talk about with your colleagues as well like are you finding that they're understanding that like on a visceral level when you say I'm working on this book about becoming embodied um, how do they respond in at Duke and other places yeah there are some people who are who are very excited about this book because in part it's my story um, both about my gender transition and and coming into androgyny and non-binary transness um some people are very excited about that and then and then other people are skeptical um that i am capitulating or am not um um i'm not being faithful to the discourse when in fact i um i think i'm being more faithful um because as you know, um, we have inherited a faith tradition that denounces the body, but but the body was part of the tradition early on, and and even um, those of us who are part of liturgical traditions that recite creeds talk about the body in the mm-hmm. creeds, right? So um, you know, I, it's a it, there's some people who are very excited and other people who are skeptical, and that's okay because I think that the the mixture of that actually creates conditions for a really robust conversation uh and and that's exciting because because as a public theologian what i'm most interested in is helping white folks in particular um i I identify as a latinx person but i i'm melanin deficient so i i move in the world with power access and privilege and unless i'm speaking spanish people think that i'm white and as a Latinx um, who has the skin color that I have, 
um, I love working with white folks in this realm of public theology because I want to help white folks um, understand what we all have inherited in our faith traditions. Mm-hmm. And, and many of the values that we've inherited are actually toxic. They're actually harm producing. And so I think this book will not only address some of that, but also invite us into an imagination where um, we can do harm reduction work and we can do it from a sensate place with our bodies. Do you think that um, since George Floyd's murder, I'm seeing and I'm inter- I keep asking people to see what their you know, perception is and all the protests and all the, it seems like this, this COVID time for a number of reasons has been a time where things are being revealed, you know, and like stones are being lifted up and we're seeing what's underneath, you know, and, um, and people who maybe never even thought about um, systemic racism are reading books and, you know, you look at the bestseller list on the New York Times and other places and you see that people have a, a thirst to learn more. And so, A, I think your book's really timely and it must be bringing you in different directions just to be living in this time while you're writing it. But what are you seeing, like, from your perspective? Do you think there are lasting changes that that will grow out of this time? Do you feel hope about it? Do you feel like, um, so I have a few kids who, of my own children who are uh, young adults, and sometimes I'll say, oh, did you see, I don't know, the baseball players kneeling um, before the game? And sometimes they say things like, oh, mom, that's just performative. You know, so do you see this time as one where, you know, that there could be lasting um, kind of dismantling of systemic racism in the country? Well, what I have hope for is that we're having more honest conversation. Mm -hmm. I I don't have hope that this moment will eradicate systemic racism because we're living under um, 400 years Mm -hmm. of structural racism. Um, You know, I... I think that for a lot of people, um, certainly people of color, and I include myself in that, we have been seeing things revealed for many years. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, there are a lot of people, and, and I, I, I don't mean to be oppositional when I, when I say white people, but you know, the dominant culture is coming into an awareness. Mm-hmm. And and it reminds me of the book of Revelation where John of Patmos is, is, is sharing his revelation of, of the empire and what has come. That's the moment that we're in. Mm-hmm. We're in a moment of revealing. You know, this is an apocalyptic time. Things are just being uncovered. The 2016 election was was just an uncovering of what um, marginalized people have seen for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, white folks, i.e., the dominant culture, um, for the first time in a long time, came into an awareness that that people of color were already having. Right. So I think that is important, actually. Um, it's important that that we 
talk about this consciousness raising, this um, coming into an awareness, because I think that it exposes the pain that white people live with. And what I mean by that is that um, when, when white folks see children at the border put in cages, separated from their mothers and fathers, um, something happens and, and white folks are able to feel pain in a way that is mobilizing them. Uh, when white folks saw the, the homicidal death by police force of George Floyd, white folks can feel that. And, you know, as Ella Baker said so brilliantly many years ago, until the killing of black mother sons matter, we, we, won't, we won't have gotten anywhere. And so I think we're in a moment right now where white folks in particular are having an awareness mm-hmm. that is different than it has been before. And I think it is conjuring up the pain that white folks have, this pain of being disconnected from bodies of culture. Because for white folks, and, and, and as, a, as a white passing person who has lived a lifetime in academia, I have been socialized into whiteness. And it's very toxic and it causes pain, the pain of separation. Whereas when you look at bodies of culture, we see that there is a different relational orientation in bodies of culture. But when you look at white folks, what I see is the deep pain that is caused by supremacy culture, this separation, this hyper-individualism, uh, that's painful. And, and embodiment as well, right? Right. Right. And, and you know, I think about um, even our Christian tradition, um, certainly evangelical folks, there is, an hi- there is a hyper-individualism. Mm-hmm. That is painful. Um, because it creates isolation. Um, it doesn't create or invite community. So um, I have hope that we're able to have some of these conversations mm-hmm. and that, that we can shift culture. But, you know, as Resma Minikin says, who is a cultural somatics teacher, um, black man who lives in Minnesota, it takes three to ten years to to really get into this work. So um, I say that to say it's not going to happen at the election in November when Biden wins. That's, that's not going to be the flip because we actually may have to protest Biden in, in his policies. You know, um, What I want to see is a commitment to conversation, a commitment to restoring ourselves to community because what white supremacy has done is create so much separation Mm -hmm. where community is just impossible. So as a professor, when you're at Duke or, or when you were at Berkeley and you're trying to engage your students in these kind of robust, important healing kind of conversations, 
and a, a classroom, you know, for a semester or a year, that's kind of like its own little community, right? And, right. Um, and there's an intimacy that, that the students share with each other and then with their professor. But what were some of your, I'm asking this obviously for anyone listening who, who's interested in, you know, generating and engaging in these kind of conversations. What were your best practices? Because not all your students, I'm sure, were on the same page politically and so on. And how do you create a safe space in a classroom, but also a place where people can make mistakes, say the wrong thing, um, yeah. challenge each other without hurting each other, and so on? Like, how, what can you teach us about that? Yeah, you know, consent is key. Mm -hmm. And so in creating a classroom space, it's all about um, can we practice consent? Mm -hmm. And so um, certainly we go around and say our pronouns and and we talk about why that's important um but but we also talk about power in the classroom and that that i as a professor have the most power because i'm the one signing grades and then i say but grades are a hegemonic tool of of whether or not you're successful and so let's put the grades aside because no one is going to fail can we be committed to a process? And so my pedagogical practice is building a process of trust, of humility, of critical inquiry, and imagination. And, and together, we build this little pod. And, and we imagine a different world. And it's really, it's really quite beautiful. Yeah, when I was teaching at Berkeley, I was teaching the ethics classes. So we were mining ethical theories um, for what is useful for community. How do we build an ethical community? What, what are our practices? What are our politics? And, you know, when you invite students into, um, into a process, instead of relying on a passive pedagogical practice where I'm lecturing and you're listening, which is how our churches are set up. If we dismantle that passive education model, mm -hmm. it's really insightful to see what happens because students have agency and students have an imagination. And so when they are invited into a process, amazing things happen. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And I wonder too, like with, um, with the sort of shutting of church doors, whether, you know, I keep thinking that this COVID time has been such a time to hit reset in so many yeah. different ways, like personally, in our communities, um, in our families and in our churches and so on. But I wonder too, like, what some takeaways might be in churches, like with what you're saying of not everyone, you know, filing in, sitting in their pew, facing forward, someone coming up and instructing them. But now we've all been sort of um, put on these Zoom calls, right, where yep. you can, I've been, I find it really moving, like, just to see people's faces. You see someone get moved by something, or you see, or somebody get up and go get a cup of coffee or whatever, yep. you know, like, um, or there's, we've had times, I go to an Episcopal church, church um, in Glen Ellen, Illinois, and we've um, partnered with other churches in the area, which has been a cool thing, too. So some yeah. services has, you know, the rector from one place and the rector from our place are on the same, you know, yeah. streaming service. 
So I wonder like what takeaways we might make permanent after all of this, you know, in terms of the way that we do church together and church community. Yeah, I, I love the question about community because how do you how do you create community when or a communal um, process when we're all having to be physically distant right now? Um, I I think about my friends who are single and who are really isolated, mm-hmm. um, and the two dimensional Zoom call or FaceTime actually doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that we are all um, imagining what can come from this. And I, you know, I don't know if um, we've got a good um, sense of how do we build community out of COVID times. I know that for myself, I've been doing a lot of pastoral care for folks who, you know, who are strangers to me, but who have seen me online and, um, Mm -hmm. and my DMs are open. And so people reach out to me and, you know, it's been such a privilege and honor to hear people's stories. And, you know, what some of this has done is created new pathways to connection. Mm -hmm. And so community might not look like, a group gathered in one space mm-hmm. community might look like um, joining together through technology and participating in a process. Uh, I just participated in an event called the sacred feminine and um, it was an interactive online uh, event. And I was interviewed like a pre-recorded interview and they showed that pre-recorded interview and then people could um, respond and be in time in real time with people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we might be going in that kind of direction. I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's, I think it's too soon to know on, on some level. Right. I know for, um, I've done a few writing conferences during this time. I normally speak at them, but you know, obviously um, it's been Zoom stuff, but um, I've been really moved to see that um, and to hear from people. Um, I've done the pre-recorded thing too, where afterward there's a live um, Zoom call or you know an opportunity to really connect in real time. Um, but a number of people have said that um, if it weren't for this time, they wouldn't be able to have participated either because they have disabilities and can't travel or one person told me that she has a really um, life-threatening allergy and can't be around a lot of different kinds of food, even if it's on like a buffet table somewhere. So um, I keep hearing from people who say, you know, this conference is affordable because I don't have to travel or it feels welcoming because I can be safe in my own home and not worry about um, my allergy or my um, difficulty in moving around at a conference. And it's true, like some conferences on college campuses, you know, one thing is on one side of campus right. and one thing. And so um, so it's really, I've been made a, more aware of just because people are so effusive about, oh, wow, this is, this is available to me. We're, here's all the ways it wasn't before. And I guess that's another way, you know, when you say this is a revealing time or a revelation, you know, hearing people's stories, you know, it, uh, 
it does make me kind of rethink how I want to do those sort of events in the future. Um, because I think now we'll hear the voices if, you know, I'm right, talking about writing memoir or how to um, get your story idea going or whatever. Well, those stories wouldn't be told, you know, right. if the person was, you know, left at home and not for whatever reason, if the conference wasn't accessible. So there are some really cool things that can grow out of this, I think. Absolutely. I think that, you know, your mention of, of online space where people can join from their home is huge for mm -hmm. a lot of people who mm -hmm. want access, but, but it's too expensive to travel or they can't travel because of a disability. Um, I'm thinking about those things and I'm mm -hmm. thinking about how do I, <clears throat> How do I build and contribute to the work and build content that is accessible? Mm -hmm. And so that that's really on my mind right now. And especially going into sort of this last run of the election cycle, how do we have the conversations that we need to be having that will continue to reveal and continue to shed light on on the work that needs to be done and and mm -hmm. not just and not just create content for content sake you know how mm -hmm. do we be intentional and create mm -hmm. meaningful media mm -hmm. that 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 is impact right based and that and again that can um bring just new voices or raise voices that people might not have you know had access to before i i love that um, I have a, regarding the election, when you look at, um, and obviously, um, I don't know, you know, who you're, who you were uh, hoping might be the candidate. I was, I loved Elizabeth Warren, and was sad about, um, was so sad the day that she withdrew. But yeah. um, anyway, but um, how do you, given that we have this uh, limited, you know, we have really a, one choice, I think. Um, of a person to vote for, given all that, what's your best imagination for, for what the country could look like? Not, not because Joe Biden can do it, but what we can do or what our communities can do. Um, what would it look like in your very best imagination, this country? It's a great question. Um, I think so many of us have relied on governance to just do it for us. Mm -hmm. And what we really need to focus on and um, grow the muscles of participating in democracy. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I think that it's that, that we are choosing the better of two evils. Mm -hmm. um, Joe Biden was not my pick. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, um, if we don't address the ways in which capitalism impacts Americans and the ways in which capitalism shows up through elections and election mm -hmm. processes, um, we will not imagine the kind of world we long for. And, and I'm not trying to take away people's money, but we literally, I live in Nashville, and there are 8,000 youth who are homeless. Mm -hmm. We live in 2020. Housing should be a right. We, we should have governance 
that um, creates conditions for those 8,000 youth. Mm -hmm. And these are people under 18. Mm -hmm. Those, they should have housing. Right. And this, this points to, I, I felt like over the last three and a half years, a new commitment or understanding of how important local politics is. And I always voted. I, I'm a happy, proud voter always, but I never really took it so seriously. And then when Trump was elected, suddenly I almost like something fell from my eyes and I thought, wait, we need to start right where we are. Local really does matter. And um, during this last, well, like a year ago, I have a friend who ran um, as a city council member where I live. And with this new kind of um, conviction that local matters so much, um, I helped her with her campaign and, and we wrote postcards and knocked on doors and you know, did all manner of things and she was elected. And I'm starting to see some of the ways that her presence on that, that body is um, making changes where I live. And so, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I hear you. So, so, you know, um, the policies that have been put forth over the past three and a half years are deadly to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I, I mean, I will vote for Biden um, because, you know, my, my moral conviction to vote or not vote, that's just not an option. Um, we, we, have, we have someone who is unstable in leadership that, that is perpetuating death culture. Mm-hmm. we have to stop that now will biden be the answer no um we we you know we may have to protest biden the policies that he puts forth um we, we st- I, I so like what you said about local government i mean we have to build the channels of local government and connect with the federal government so that there is some balance of power because right now the the ways in which the GOP and what I think is a seven headed Hydra of Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. um, the, the ways in which it is evolving is becoming such a fringe movement that, um, that, that has so much, um, you know, if you think about what what the GOP is doing right now, and you really analyze it, you can see the theology of white supremacy. Right. right. And so we need to be very clear that a theology of white supremacy, which many of us have inherited through our faith traditions, is what is showing up in federal leadership right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just we don't have just a Republican problem. We we have a theological problem. And and we need to understand that um, revolutionary theology is not just dismantling supremacy culture or white supremacy, but it's it's inviting a new vision mm-hmm. for 
for the world. Liberation theology talks about this as, as the eschatological vision. Like, what are we hoping for? Mm-hmm. And so as much as, um, I mean, I don't have hope in our current system, but I have hope that we can midwife a better world. I might not see it in my lifetime. Um, John Lewis didn't see the entirety in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but my God, he went from the cotton fields of Alabama to being in Congress. Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And working for good. Being imprisoned and and beaten and the victim of police brutality to being honored and lying in state. Which was so powerful. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. That's a long-winded way to. to I love it. I I love thinking about these things, and I love kind of sort of pushing on the edges of of how we often think about these things and think all right well what are are we in for the long haul are we um are we willing to make little changes in the local area to keep voting i think voting is so i hope that you know some of um the young people i know who were you know really uh ardent loyal bernie supporters have said they're not going to vote and i that just breaks my heart because i think I understand it, and I understand that that feeling of, um, you know, just wanting to have integrity and also wanting to celebrate um, sort of his particular, you know, Bernie's particular place in the um, political spectrum and everything, but I do think it's just so important that we, we all vote. Yeah, I, I think the solution that I see it is not found in not voting. Mm-hmm because that reinforces um, the very thing that we have in place. Um, I think the solution is um, building coalitions of difference and really asking ourselves, what kind of people do we want to be? Mm -hmm. And once we ask ourselves that and get in touch with the pain of separation, we, we, we can begin to build coalitions that hopefully make the kind of lasting change mm-hmm. that eradicates homelessness, that, um, which is also racialized, you know. Um, we, we can find a way for minimum wage to, to not be $7 an hour, but but be a livable wage. Um, we, you know, we, we've created such a caste system in this country. Yeah. And, you know, there's no reason why poverty should, should exist here. That, you know, that this country has too much money. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the solution this November, it has to be in voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it can't stop there. It has to be in putting pressure on, on our, whoever represents our communities to make the right choice that, that creates conditions for flourishing that, um, that does defund the police because, you know, modern day police evolve from slave patrol. So there's a, there's a tie to, white supremacy, a direct tie for, 
to white supremacy and the Klan. So, you know, we, we have to think about the, these are very complex issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to take the time to educate ourselves and, and then be strategic in building our coalitions to create harm reduction and to create a better world, which is, which is what I try to do as a public theologian, um, tease out the, the theology. Like, here's a theological thread, you know, let's, let's analyze that. How do we, how do we restory that theology mm-hmm. for it to be liberative? Um, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of work to be done. There's a multi-lane movement and figuring out what lane we're supposed to be in is, is the work of discernment and very important. Um, and I think that we need to be in conversation. We, we need to be talking to one another and, and we need to be in our own lanes, but be able to be in conversation. Absolutely. I think that's uh, wonderful. I don't want to take too much of your time today too. Um, but I am really thankful that, that you have, you've given some sort of big and little picture overviews of, of your thinking about this and, um, and I think that your role as public theologian, I, I love that, but I think that's one that you play very well. Um, Thank you. But can you tell us, for anyone who wants to um, revisit your work or uh, see your books, um, you can tell us your website or other places online that during this time of physical distancing, <laughs> they can um, connect with you. Yeah, so I am on Twitter and Instagram at iRobin, and I'm very active in those places, and I respond to things. My DMs are open. My website is iRobin.com, the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N, and um, of course, I'm on Facebook, but I'm, because they put a max on your friends, I'm maxed out, so everything is public on Facebook. You can follow my professional page where I post videos and do some sort of teaching um, through the live stream and whatnot. And then if you're interested in um, my collaborative project, the Activist Theology Project, we are online at activisttheology.com and activists and theology share a T, so it's a a mashup word. And then of course, I co-host the Activist Theology Podcast weekly and those episodes drop around Thursday or Friday and Mm -hmm. Um, we have um, really amazing people on, and we talk about um, the intersection of theology and social action, and how do we get our hands dirty? So it's it's a it's a podcast around connecting the dots around what's happening in the world, and when we use um, we use like the real material of what's happening, you know, the news mm-hmm. to talk about on our podcast. And so we just had Tim Wise on our podcast and talking about what is the work for white folks. And so um, check us out there. And of course, I'm happy to be in conversation with people. And um, I'm just really thankful that you invited me to, to oh, talk Tim, about really great. These, these, um, these practices of faith, hope, and love that mm-hmm. um, we, I think we discount that as being churchy language, but um, what do we have faith in in this moment? Do we have faith in being courageous? And for what are we hoping? And 
do we embody revolutionary love that can change the world? Um, because I think those three things, faith, hope, and love, is um, not only what's modeled in the life and story of Jesus, um, but can be modeled in this moment right now to bring about a better world. And not just a Christian world, but a world comprised of radical difference. Mm -hmm. And that excites me. That's, it is very exciting. I love, you just put such a nice button on this conversation. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, all right. So everyone, I hope you will find Dr. Robin online and uh, connect with all the work that's, that's there and um, dig deeper. It sounds like the podcast is like a perfect next step. Um, if these thoughts kind of awakened some desire to get more involved or to think more deeply along these lines. So anyway, thank you, Dr. Robin. So Thanks we'll sign so much. Off. Good to be here.